Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. All right, the Word of God, I'd like you to stand with me. We're doing an amalgam, a hybrid version of the of the Word of God this morning because at one point I took out the words that are in the New American Standard and I put in the words that are in the ESV and I think they do a better job of expressing what Jesus says or what is said about Jesus and I think they are actually more understandable than the and they're more faithful. The one of them is just straight up the right word and the other one both both translations have to sort of fit together because in the Greek the words are are what you would call alliterative. The, the, when Matthew's writing, he uses uh, like dumb dog. That's two Ds, it's alliteration. You dumb dog, you do it because you're trying to emphasize something. You use two Ds like that, you understand? And that's what Matthew does at one point. In, in, the, in the Greek, it's alliteration. It's the same initial sound in both. And so both the translations have tried to keep that, um, I think, the ESV more effectively. All right? So and I'll tell you when we get there what those words are. This is the word of God, Matthew 9, 32 through 38. As they were going out, that is Jesus with his disciples, as they were going out, a demon-possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke and the crowds were amazed and were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And catch the distinction the people are saying, the Pharisees are saying, Jesus was going through all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. Now, that's the pair of words that are alliterative in the Greek and the NASB says distressed and dispirited. The first word is clearly harassed. The second word in the Greek means fallen down. And I think helpless is better than dispirited. Harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. The word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is not just a privilege to preach to a congregation like this. It is an immensely greater privilege to preach it all. And I pray, Father, that you will make every preacher who is here, including me, on Sunday after Sunday, to be aware of the privilege and to take it seriously. Father, we pray that these will not be my words, but that they may be the Holy Spirit's words and thus come with with power and bring conviction. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. This is a passage that has a number of contrasts at its heart, great contrasts, galloping contrasts. They are contrasts between Jesus and the Pharisees, between Jesus and his power and the way he uses it and the power of Satan, between Jesus and his power and the way he uses it and the power of the Pharisees, between what the demons want and what Christ wants, between the attitude of Jesus towards the crowd and the Pharisees' attitude. A great 
many contrasts. And every contrast, of course, is an opportunity for you and me to exercise choice, to make a decision, to see in that contrast something about ourselves, and to decide which side we're on and how we're going to live. This is the passage. Now, let me begin at the end with what Jesus says at the, at the end of the, of, the, of the chapter and of the verses we're looking at. What he says to his disciples as he's sending them out. He's about to send them out on a missionary journey. This is his introduction to them of what they're going to do and who they're going to. We'll see more about that in weeks to come. But let me just say to you right now, he says to them, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest. In other words, pray to God that he will send out workers into his, into his harvest. Harvest is plentiful, workers are few. Why is it that the church languishes? Why is it that the world is not won over? Why is it that we are not seeing great crowds of people thronging to salvation? Why is it that we are seeing a nation where the church seems to be losing power in a world where in the same way that church seems to be losing power the influence decaying and dying the the power of the church not evident is it because of the world ah but the world has always been the world hasn't it or is it because there aren't workers in the vineyard that the harvest doesn't have harvesters Clearly, Jesus lays the blame on the lack of harvesters, not on the lack of people who are ready to be harvested. Was that his day and not our day? Was Jesus speaking then to a day that was, that was uniquely open to the gospel, whereas we live in a day that's uniquely hardened to the gospel? Well, that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. It's my conviction that the Word of God is eternally true. And that means it's relevant. When it speaks about men and women, it's not ignorant. It's not speaking to an age that's different and we've learned more. It's not talking about how men and women once were in the darkness of the past when patriarchy reigned, but it's speaking to all people in all times, and it understands that because it comes from God. It's the Holy Spirit that speaks to it. In the same way, when the Word of God says that the fields are ripe, that they're ready to be harvested, that the, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, that's not a word just for the disciples as they go out, is it? Is this not equally a word for us? The harvest is plentiful. Now I know, I understand that to all of us, this idea that the harvest is plentiful seems cockeyed and crazy. It seems untrue. Not true of our day, at least. We live in an especially hard and difficult day, and there are very few people who will listen in our day. I'm not so sure. Let's look at the passage, all right? We have in this passage a number of conflicts and contrasts. Every contrast leads to a conflict or every conflict produces a contrast. And these leave us with matters of choice. Decisions that we must make. There are in this passage people and they appear to be in play. The crowds, the harvest, Jesus says is plentiful. But of course because the, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. What Jesus is saying is they are ready and the, the work has been done of God, but there are not the workers to bring them in. And so they, 
they are not actually in, in, in a, a neutral position like Switzerland in World War II that said, well, we're between one rock and another hard place, and we're just going to say, ah, we're neutral. Now, these, these people, they need salvation. And in reality, because they have not yet been harvested and have not yet become the fruit of the kingdom, they are under the dominion of darkness. They are under the demonic powers that we see working in this passage. <clears throat> so we have the people, and then we have the Pharisees who oppose Jesus in this and, and attribute what he's doing to the work of demons, and that Jesus is allied with the ruler of the demons, which is Satan, of course. And so we have the Pharisees, and they're saying, well, they're implying by this that Jesus is on the side of darkness, which clearly makes them on the side of what? Light, right? It's obvious that they regard themselves as being in the kingdom of light and Jesus in the domain of darkness. And so the Pharisees are, we would say, or they would say, we wouldn't say because we know better, but in our own day we might not think as clearly as we do of the Pharisees, all right? But the Pharisees, they're in the kingdom of light, they think, but we understand that actually as Jesus is having his works attributed to the, the prince of darkness, that these men are darkness, right? They think they're light, but actually they're darkness. And then we have um, the demons who are present, and uh, they, are, they are actually allied with the Pharisees. The, the, the demons are being quiet about it, and the, the Pharisees are denying it. The Pharisees are saying, no way, he's with the demons, not us. The demons are keeping quiet, but actually the Pharisees, they've got them in their hip pocket, and they're doing the demonic work. And then we have Jesus, who is the Son of God. The people, the demons, the Pharisees, and Jesus. And... Initially, the contrast that jumps into view in this passage is between the attitude of Christ towards these people and the attitude of the Pharisees. It is a great distinction, a huge contrast. Jesus is going through the cities of Israel. People are coming to him, bringing the ill, bringing the demon-possessed, bringing every kind of disease, every form of infirmity. And when it says they brought him every disease and every infirmity, it seems to be a distinction between active illness, someone who is suffering right now in an active way from an active disease process and infirmity being more, more like some kind of handicap or an illness that has reduced the abilities so that it's now a lifelong condition, COPD, you know, uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, probably an infirmity, you know, um, some of the things that were born within our limbs, infirmities. And then illnesses. And they're bringing them all to him. And he is healing them all and proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's proclaiming the, the kingdom of God. Teaching in their synagogues. Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The good news that God is here. And revealing the kingdom of God in its power by setting people free. People are being set free. The power of Satan bound this man who was mute. The power of Satan kept him from speaking. This binding no doubt had malevolent effects beyond the man's tongue, but with a word and a command from Christ, the power of Satan is gone, the man speaks. He speaks, and, and we see that this, this is going to affect every part of the man's life, and Jesus is doing this all the time. He's, he's able to speak, which is kind of a physical condition that goes, 
But there are other dimensions to it, spiritually, not being able to speak, not being able to, to, to join others in the worship of God, at least obviously so, you know, maybe inwardly, but not outwardly. How, emo- how different the, the man is as a result of this, this miracle emotionally. What a difference in his emotional life to be able to speak to other people and to express his emotions with words. How differently he goes about his life from this point on, how Jesus has changed him in his social condition, in his ability to relate to people now that he can speak where before he couldn't. And all with a word from Jesus, the power of the kingdom. He's proclaiming the kingdom and there its power is. And so what we have here in Jesus, what's going on is a raging tour de force of divine power. Jesus is going and it is, it is him leading the pack. He is doing everything. It is a, uh, is a word, it's a coup de main. It means he's just throwing over every power. He's just doing everything. He's just, it, it's astonishing to every constituency. Even his enemies are astonished. They say, well, they don't like him, but they got to say it's something. So they say, he's doing it because he's satanic. Only Satan could do this kind of thing. He's in, he's in league with the king of demons. That's how he does these things. Now what we see in our passage is that Jesus sets free those whom Satan binds. That Jesus is freedom and he does as the prophet Isaiah says, he comes to set the captives free. He is setting captives free. Every type of captivity, every form of captive, free. Because what we see with this mute man's tongue is happening everywhere and in every kind of captivity. It's happening with captivity to sin. In our last chapter There was a wicked man, a man named Matthew, who was a tax collector and who hung out with sinners, a man who was scorned for his sinfulness. Jesus calls him and he leaves his life of sin. His sin is gone and he's the author of this book. It's one of the great things, you know, the great glories of the scripture is that this guy who wrote this book was one of the guys that the Pharisees looked at and said, sinner, Jesus, you wouldn't hang with those kinds of guys if you knew who they were. The blind are are having their eyes open, but it's not just the physically blind, the spiritually blind. The mute who could not declare the glories of God, couldn't say anything, are now singing praises to Jesus. The lame, the deaf, the hopeless, the perishing, he's coming And wherever he goes, he has a train that is carried behind him. And in his train are redemption and freedom and life. There are chains falling off. There are prison doors springing open. It's not just Peter who gets released from a prison in the book of Acts. But you have been, if you know Jesus, you were in prison. You were bound by Satan with bondage and chains that were more effective than the Roman chains in that actual literal dungeon that Peter was in. You were bound and Jesus has come and set you free. Prison doors are springing open, not just for Peter, not just for Daniel, not just for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but for you. You, if you have come to know Jesus, set free. Chains of sin and satanic oppression. 
Jesus is the king of freedom. And it's important that we have a divine savior bringing us our freedom and setting us free. Because behind the works that Jesus heals, many of which have an apparent physical nature, there are demons. We see in scripture that illnesses are caused by demons. We see in the Bible that muteness, here, caused by demons. Paralysis is caused by demons. Violence is caused by demonic oppression in a life. The, the Gadarene demoniacs who are on the far side of the Galilee, of the Sea of Galilee. They were bound in chains and kept away from the masses because they were a threat to the masses because of, because of the demonic oppression that was upon them. So violence is a result of demons. Idols are all of the work of demons. The Bible says that the, all the idols of the nations are demons. And so the idolatry of America is demonic and that is whether it's pornography or our, our lust for Instagram or our addiction to video games, all of which are forms of idolatry that we engage in and they're all demonic. They all have demons at work in them. And that's why what is prevalent in all those things is, is wickedness. The wisdom of the world, in fact, is demonic. There's a very interesting verse, James 3, 5, that says, This wisdom, and it's speaking of the world's wisdom, is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly natural, earthly natural, what's the third word that James uses? Anyone know it? Earthly natural demonic. This wisdom which is from, not that from above, is earthly natural and demonic. And, uh, and we think this world is natural and not in bondage to Satan, not proud by a, a devil whose nature is to kill, steal, and destroy, but we're wrong. In fact, Martin Luther, I, I, I think he was, he was more aware of this battle, this bondage of the world than, than most people. And he once said that, that every sneeze, in other words, illness, is from a demon. And I think if we understood the power of demons and the ubiquity, the, the, the commonness of demonic forces, we would we would feel more like Luther than we do today where we think that there's no demonic activity at all. It's not to say that demons have great power. They're always being trumped. They're always being held in check by the power of God. And yet, demonic oppression is, is, in, is in our lives. It's, it, it drives us. Satan wants to bind us, but Jesus is the king of freedom. Jesus is setting captives free, and yet... The irony is that our world, and even us at times, are of the opinion that the opposite is the case, that Satan gives freedom. You know, we get to do what we want. Satan gives freedom, and Jesus restrains and binds. And so it's viewed by many people, even some in the church, as though Christianity doesn't set free, but it, it forces us and constrains us. And it's simply not true. Unless you say that Satan's bondage is a good thing and a happy thing, 
Jesus is setting free. Jesus is the king of freedom. Some of us are marching to Satan's tune and we're convinced it's freedom. We think we're in control. And, and yes, in a certain sense, you are in control, but you're in control in an asylum. You get to do whatever you want except to leave the asylum. Decide that you want out of the asylum and you'll see just how free you really are and how much you really need Jesus who lives to set asylum dwellers free. Because you understand the people Jesus sets free are people who chose their bondage. Now in one way or another you can say, well, how did they choose their bondage? Did they choose their bondage? And not every one of them chose their bondage. Not every one of them had it come as a result of their own sins or even as a result of the sins of their parents. But this mute man who's tormented by demons, can we say that he did nothing in his life that opened him up to demonic oppression? Are we certain that he's an innocent victim? We could perhaps. We know that many young children had demons in their lives. But many who Satan afflicts are actually afflicted because they have made a choice that opens them up to demonic power. This is why Jesus, in the word of God, warns people that if they have a demon cast out of themselves, and this is very, very important for those of us who are young Christians to remember, that if they have a demon cast out of themselves, they need to fill that empty space, that void in their lives that the demonic oppression leaving has created with good things, with the word of God, with the Holy Spirit of God, with Christian fellowship, with the teaching of God's word, because that demon will go out and wander, Jesus says, in waste spaces. It's going to go out into the wildernesses where the demons are. This is why they love to be corporeal. They love to be in a body. You notice that with demons. They love to be in a person. And if they're put out, they say, at least let us go into the pigs. Let us do something where we have control. And so the demons wander in the waste spaces. And then they say, let's, the demon that was cast out says, let's go back. I'm going to go back and I'm going to check out my former home. They come back and they find that it's been swept clean but not occupied. That we have not taken up all the things that God has given us to continue our freedom and to expand it. And he, he goes out and the Bible says, and he gets seven demons worse than himself. And he comes back with the others. He reoccupies the person who was set free. And the Bible says, ultimately, the final condition of that person is worse than when it first began. And what it's clear is that we have some responsibility to fight demons. Jesus wouldn't say that if it weren't the case that you, by what you do, open your life up to demons. I'm telling you as a pastor, I have seen this. There are certain occasions in my life as a pastor where I have seen people open their lives to demons. And it's a tragic thing. But of course, if I take myself seriously and Luther seriously and the Word of God seriously, it may be that we're all doing this frequently, that we're allowing demons influence that we should be fighting in smaller areas. I'm talking about the things I've seen being huge things. <laughs> Illnesses, okay? Illnesses. So many of them are a result of personal choice. You talk to a, a, a doctor who works in an emergency room. And they can help with the diseases, but so often there's a sense of futility in their work because though they can help with the physical 
ramifications of the disease or even help cure the disease. They can't cure the behavior that led to the disease. You talk to an ER doctor and you're going to hear them, how often they're disgusted by the, by the continual choice of disease that people make. Let me just say, there are illnesses in our midst that are the result of personal choice. And the power that those illnesses have is often a result of choice as well. We decide to give in or we decide not to. And Satan is at work through illness. So we have illness, we have sin, we have demonic oppression, all these things, all these things we are actively choosing in and uh, uh, responsible for, in a way. And yet Jesus does not distinguish in his treatment of those who fall into these categories. He sets every prisoner free, including the prisoners who have constructed their, their dungeon by their own hands. Now the Pharisees, they're not on Jesus' side. They don't want this freedom that is in Jesus. They don't like it. They look out on the crowds as Jesus is working in their midst and they see them being set free and they attribute it to Satan because the Pharisees, well, what do they want? They want to be in control. They want the people to be in bondage to themselves. They think they're free. They think the people need them and they want to be in charge. They are wanting to be in control. And so the Pharisees are actually on the side of Satan. They are actually in league with Satan. It's ironic. They, they accuse Jesus and say, you're in league with Satan. They are tied at the hip to Satan. They are Satan's henchmen. And they're accusing others of being it. And let me add, this is something that goes on today as well. When someone comes and is calling people from lives of sin to freedom, very often the attitude of many is, that person doesn't take their condition seriously enough. That person isn't giving them what they really need. They need to follow. They need to be in some kind of a relationship that is strong and where they're, we want them to be bound to us rather than to be set free. Now, I'm not speaking against authority or the authority of the church or the teaching, but very often the attitude of people towards the power of God when it's displayed in the midst of sinful people is jealousy and anger. And so are we on Jesus' side or on, are we on the Pharisee side? I want to say a little more. And you may not feel that you're, you're being charged with anything that, that makes sense to you right now if I ask you, are you on the Pharisee's side? So I'm going to speak a little more about the Pharisees and their attitude. The reason I have to ask this of you is that the, the Pharisees are sensible men. They see and understand what I've just said, that personal responsibility lies at the heart of, of so many afflictions. And they don't think it's right that Jesus go about setting people free from a bondage that they've chosen themselves. These are sensible men. These are men who are captains of the doctrine of total depravity. They understand that you are wicked and you are wicked and you are wicked and boy, it's a world of wickedness. You're all wicked. They know that. They believe it firmly in their being. The only problem is they think they're the answer. Therefore, that this depravity is not in their own hearts, clouding their own judgments, veiling their own eyes, causing them to make just as bad decisions as the people they're critical of. 
So they're shouting at Jesus and they're saying, these are bad people. You heard this very often as you've listened to the voices of the Pharisees in the, in the Gospels. Don't you know that these are sinners? Don't you know the kind of people you're hanging out with? You can't just do this. They are in the worst asylum of all. It's their own self-righteousness, a prison that is bound by pride and love of position and greed. No one is so blind as the man who thinks he sees no one is more captive than the man who thinks that his own prison, the prison that he's constructed, is freedom. And that's the Pharisees and some of us. Jesus sees these people. What does he see them as? Well, he, it's described in verse 36. This is one of the most striking verses in all of the Gospels. Jesus looks at these crowds, and we agree with the Pharisees. They're wicked. Now, we'd agree that the Pharisees are wicked as well, and they wouldn't agree with that. We'd agree with Jesus on that. But it's a wicked crowd. Jesus looks at them, verse 36, and he felt compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He sees them, and he loves them, and he feels sorry for them. The Pharisees see them, and they're angry. Jesus sees these people as victims. He feels compassion for them. They were harassed and helpless. They were sheep without a shepherd. Now, it may still be that you're not feeling the slightest bit of Pharisee in yourself today. But let me ask you. I don't know how to do this without offending some. It's not my goal to offend. And in, in a sense, the comparison I want to make is, is unfair. I understand that. But you have to exaggerate to make a point, okay? If Jesus saw the Black Lives Matter movement marching through his upper middle class neighborhood, which Jesus probably wouldn't live there. But if he did live there, would he be taking out his... his his, his assault rifle and standing on the front steps of his house and saying, you're not going to get me. Or would he feel sympathy? What would Jesus be doing if he lived in Portland, Oregon? Screaming? yelling that the authorities have given up their power and seeing the mobs and saying despicable. These are bad people. Pharisees delight in looking at others and saying, yuck, can't stand. They don't feel sympathy. They don't look at the people marching in the streets of Portland and say, they're harassed and helpless. They look at them and say, no, they're wicked. They're wicked. They need a taste of a whip. That's the pharisaical attitude. I'm saying, is there no sin in the streets of Portland? Of course there is. Is there no sin here? Are we immaculate? 
do we have the righteousness in ourselves to look down on the wickedness of these people? You can say, okay, well, in New York, the people who are marching are rich and wealthy. Certainly, we shouldn't have any sympathy for these children of the wealthy. Is that true? Went to a college that had a lot of kids from the Cleveland suburbs who had grown up going to prep schools and from some New England cities. A lot of really, really wealthy. No one in that school was more bound than those rich kids. And they didn't even know how dark their darkness was. Can we not sympathize with the wealthy? Okay. I want to talk now about Israel and this crowd, all right? Because you're looking at this crowd through certain lenses, and I think they're wrong. I think you have a, a colored view of these crowds, and I want to, just so that you feel a little bit more of the, of the, the charge I'm making, that we are all at heart Pharisees rather than Christ. I want to speak about the crowd. If we look at the crowds, we read the, the, the passage, and we think, well, we would have been on their side. We'd have been on the side of Christ if we were there with the knowledge we have now, not the side of the Pharisees. And I'm not so sure. I'm, I'm not as sure of that as in my own life. And I, I, I'll admit that my attitude towards those in this situation is usually more like the Pharisees than Christ. And if I'm going to admit it about myself, I'm going to assume I'm represented an awful lot of you. Is that fair? Let me describe the Israel of Jesus' day. I think we have a romantic view of Jesus' day and of the Jews of that day that isn't accurate. We see them as unusually oppressed, cast down, people who have, have it hard, and somewhat righteous. And we see them as oppressed because they long for God. But it's not reality, just not. 400 years before this, 500 years when a handful of Jews began trickling back from captivity in the lands that they had been exiled to, this might have been said of the Jews of Jerusalem and Judea, couldn't have been said long. And that was many, many centuries ago, long before Columbus sailed the oceans blue in terms of where we stand today. And the Jews are, if nothing else, a brilliant and resilient people. When they were cast into exile, they ended up ruling. Daniel being the, the second in command of Darius of the Persians, certainly a chief advisor to Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian Empire, which by some measures, was the greatest empire the world's ever known in terms of the mass, the percentage of the human population to, uh, to live under its sway. Jews are a brilliant, resilient people. In their own land, with their own rulers, they have always been a prosperous and powerful people. Now, it's gone up and down. It's seldom been as, as prosperous as it was on da under Daniel. But... If you want to have an idea of what Israel looked like in Jesus' day, I think, go to Israel today. You want to know what Judea was like in Christ's day? Think of Israel today. It wasn't the largest nation. It wasn't the most populous nation. 
by any means. It wasn't what we call, those of us who grew up with Marxist professors, a hegemon nation. In other words, a nation that sits in the tallest seat of all and tells every other nation what to do. It wasn't the seat of an empire, but it was a nation. A nation with outsized impact on the rest of the world whose actions were known in Rome, a key nation, a central nation, a place of influence, one of the places in the world that you would have said was at the center of things, just like Israel today. Israel is all those things today. It's not the hegemon, it's not the key nation, but it's right there in the thick of things. This was no less true of Israel in Jesus' day than of Israel today. It was Israel was key to Roman control of the region of Palestine. Its people, its religion, one of the few accepted as a religio licita, in other words, an allowed religion, a legal religion by Rome. The king of Israel, some years before this, grew up with the Caesars of Rome. He was that connected, Herod. Its capital and the temple at the center of that capital was one of the great cities and one of the great wonders of the world. It was wealthy, significant, and powerful far beyond its size or apparent significance and not merely because it was a nation that was situated at key trading routes or at the confluence of a number of key trading routes, but because it was a nation that had been chosen, singularly chosen and blessed by God. The Jews were never losers from the moment God chose Abraham. They were outnumbered, they were threatened, they were persecuted, they were defeated at times, but they were never losers, never because God's blessing was on them. These are not losers by the general meaning of the term that Jesus is looking at and saying they're harassed and helpless. They would not see themselves as such and they wouldn't like it if you called them losers. They see themselves as you see yourself. Look, I went to a a large high school. My freshman class entering was somewhere between 1,200 and 1,300 students. It was a three-year high school, so that was actually sophomore class, sophomore, junior, and senior. I knew two students in, the, in my class who were Jewish. There weren't a lot of Jews, a lot of black men and women, a lot of white men and women, a lot of his, uh, Latino men and women. I knew two Jews. Guess in that class, the graduating class, we had a lot of dropouts, so we drop out about half the class. Um, so we'd graduate out of 1,200, about 700. Guess what positions those two Jews occupied in class rank? I don't think you're surprised to know that they were number one and number two. 1,200 students, valedictorian, salutatorian. This is not a new thing. This is the nature of the Jewish nation and people. Brilliant, possessed of an undying sense of their significance in this world, even when they denied the reality of the God who chose them, blessed by God. Harassed, Jesus says. Helpless. They're harassed and helpless. But they're not just the poor, are they? The Pharisees are there. The tax collectors who are wealthy are there. There's a lot. It's not a a crowd of the rabble. Harassed and helpless. It's like you gather a group at an American NFL game and Jesus looks out at them and says, how harassed and helpless. It's like Jesus saw 
a protest in downtown Toledo, he'd say, harassed and helpless. You go, it's like if Jesus came to the, the huge funeral that was held for the police officer who was killed in our city a few weeks ago. Jesus came in and looked at them. They're angry. They're sad. They're angry. There's a lot of police around saying, we're opposed to this. We're going to have, Jesus looks at them and he says, harassed and helpless. He's feeling pity for them. He's feeling sorry for them. The Pharisees, they have no sympathy for these people. The Pharisees see only rot and they won't lift a finger. Pharisees, you know, they drive down the road in their nice car and they come to the, the intersection of, oh, 475, 23 with Airport Highway or the, the Home Depot on Secor Road just north of, of Selenia. All right, now, Central. I'm trying to think of the places where I see guys. They're, they're driving, and they look out, and there are these guys sitting there begging. And what do they do in their cars? They harumph. <laughs> you look healthy. They say it under their breath, get a job. Jesus sees these people, and he says they're all like harassed and helpless, sheep without a shepherd. What does it mean that they are sheep without a shepherd? I'll tell you what it means. It means they are men and women in the darkest place of all. They have no authority over them that they will heed. They are sheep who have wandered from the fold. They are rebels. They have rejected the shepherds God has sent them. They have turned against the shepherds God has provided. They have chosen this fate just like you, just like me. They have not been forced into rebellion. It's their natural choice. And Jesus says about such people, the Bible says about such people of Jesus surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken smitten of God and afflicted we stood with the Pharisees stricken smitten by God but he was pierced through for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Don't shout about the rebels. Don't point your finger at the rebels. Don't look down your nose at the Black Lives Matter protesters. Do not do it. So the minute you do it, you line yourself right up with the Pharisees in opposition to Jesus. Jesus loved them. Jesus pitied them, tended them, fed them. Rebels. They were rebels. Jesus cared for them. Angry men. Jesus loved them. Sinners with self-inflicted suffering. And Jesus healed them. In his love, he meets their needs. In his love, he takes their pains on himself. The world is ripe. The harvest is there. But we have, we have too tight a hold on our, on our wallets. Too tight a hold on our Bibles and our righteousness. Righteousness. 
too tight a hold on this life. We can't see it. Jesus says, follow me. I'll be a shepherd. I'll be your guide. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Many of us this morning are in a prison that we've made, constructed by our own hands. It's the prison of rebellion, of following our own wills, doing what we want, wandering from God. Telling ourselves that this is freedom, that we like it. Jesus says, come unto me. You're really, you're not free, you're burdened. Come unto me, get into the yoke with me, accept my leadership, and I will set you free. I will set you free and you'll know freedom indeed because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you'll gamble through life, you'll cavort through life like, like a little calf that's suddenly no longer burdened by a heavy yoke but as a calf would be when it suddenly has the big papa bull come and take the burden from it. Jesus wants you free and easy under his yoke. Submit to him. Say yes to this Savior who loves you. Forget all the other people who don't love you. Think about Jesus and his love for you, and you will be set free. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Jesus, this glorious Savior. Set us free, Father. Release us from our captivity. Cause us no longer to love the, the prisons of sin that we've constructed ourselves. May we see ourselves with the eyes of Jesus and turn to him. And may we see the world with the eyes of Jesus and turn them to him as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.